Hey folks, Andy Patton here. The Zags are once again advancing to the Sweet 16 after defeating the Tigers of Memphis in an absolute barn burner on Saturday night in Portland. Going to talk a lot about that game and that second half in particular while looking ahead to the upcoming matchup against Arkansas, all right here on Mailbag Monday, Locked On Zags podcast. Don't go away. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I am your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to take you through another March madness. Once again, the Zags are in the Sweet 16. This episode of Locked on Zags is brought to you by Stat Hero. Stat Hero is reshaping the way you play fantasy sports. Dozens of house-based games to play daily. No sharks, no funky props, just your skill versus the lineups you choose. Sign up today at stathero.com slash locked on. I want to thank all of you who continue to make this podcast your first listen every day. Some of you have been listening for years and years. Some of you are much, much newer to the show. Either way, I, of course, appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to the show. I also appreciate those of you who have checked the show out on YouTube. We are very close to hitting our goal of 500 subscribers before the end of the season. We're running up on the end of things, down to 16 teams left. So if you have yet to hit that subscribe button on YouTube, just go to YouTube.com, search Locked on Zags. Find that big orange button, hit subscribe. Would seriously appreciate all of the support. Today is Mailbag Monday, of course, off after the Zags. Defeated the Memphis Tigers on Saturday night in Portland, Oregon. One of the most electric basketball games of the NCAA tournament. Certainly one of the most intense atmospheres I have been at individually. I know many people listening to the show were at that game as well. It was a Absolutely crazy environment, obviously an unfortunate first half that resulted in a fantastic comeback for the Zags in the second half. We're going to talk a ton about that game in the first segment here. Uh, Just full disclosure, I got a ton of questions this week for Mailbag Monday. I appreciate every single question, and I do intend to answer every single one of them. Some of these will spill over into Tuesday's show, so if you asked a question you did not see or hear it get answered in this show Rest assured, it will be answered in Tuesday's episode. We're going to start here with the first question of the show from 8206 on Twitter, who says, Galvanizing performance that will help us later on? Alarm bells and warning signs or a bit of both? I like starting with this question because, as you could probably guess, for those of you who have listened to the show for a long time, I'm going to say a bit of both. Uh, I am going to say that I'm leaning more towards this being the kind of win that will help Gonzaga ultimately rather than the kind of win that exposes their flaws. We knew going into this game what Memphis, the, the abilities that Memphis had that could give Gonzaga trouble. And those things showed up. Memphis also did not have some of the flaws that we expected them to have. One of the biggest things that I talked about on this show that a lot of people expected to be a factor in this game was Memphis turning the basketball over. They did an incredible job, hats off to Penny Hardaway and their team, for keeping care of the basketball. That did not end up being a factor at all in this game. And yet, Gonzaga withstood their physicality, withstood their athleticism, and kept them at bay throughout the game. This, to me, was an overall very positive performance. It was not a fun first half. (laughs) I'm aware of that. It was a very, very challenging first half to go into it down by double digits. But for them to respond to that, 
make adjustments at halftime, still secure victory. They Not only did they come back, take the lead, and suck all of the momentum out of Memphis's team, Memphis still responded to that, never let Gonzaga build a big lead, and was within striking distance until the final seconds. That Gonzaga has not been in a lot of games like that. Last year's team which went all the way to the championship before getting steamrolled by Baylor, they were not in games like that. This year's team has already endured that, not only in the regular season with a handful of losses and a handful of close wins, but here in the NCAA tournament as well. They likely will have more close games coming ahead. Arkansas is a tough matchup. They're going to play either Texas Tech or Duke after that, and then they're going to get into the Final Four if they continue to win. None of those are going to be easy games. So having the ability to withstand athleticism, withstand adversity at all and battle through close games and secure victory, it's hard not to see that being a positive thing for this team. Next question comes from Christian. Christian says, this has already been a different tournament for the Zags in comparison to last season. What are your thoughts on the differences? Could being tested as the Zags were in the Memphis game prove valuable? Yeah, so I just kind of touched on this already, but I'll kind of go over it again. Yeah, Memphis, for starters, talent-wise, is better than a nine seed. I don't think that they were necessarily underseeded. They underperformed throughout the regular season, and so I think a nine seed was actually fairly reasonable. But talent-wise, with Duran, with a healthy Amoni Bates, with DeAndre Williams playing the way he's been playing, this team is probably like a three seed talent-wise. I think a lot of people would tell you that who watched college basketball this year as well. So this was a good test for Gonzaga to have to endure playing a good, challenging, physical team early in the tournament. You're right. This didn't really happen last year. The Zags, you know, they, they they didn't steamroll everybody. Obviously, the UCLA game was a tremendous challenge, but early in the tournament for Gonzaga was not as big of an issue as it was there this year or has been so far this year. I think this is a good thing for the Zags. I kind of mentioned that already. I think the fact that they have had to endure adversity already, not just in the regular season, but here in the tournament can only help them as they have to now power through Arkansas and one of Texas Tech and Duke. That's not an easy path, and they're going to have to battle really hard in those games, but the fact that they've already proven that they can win close games is going to help them tremendously. Next question comes from Josh Edits on Twitter, who says, Perhaps unanswerable, but was that W due to adjustments or guys just willing a win plus some curious Memphis moves? Feels like I wasn't the only one giving us no chance of coming back given Memphis's athletic advantage, but Timmy negated it with jumpers we've not seen in a long time. You, my friend, were absolutely not the only person who gave the Zags, as you put it, no chance of coming back. Uh, I had multiple comments on Twitter that said, it's a bummer that we're going to be out in the round of 32. Incidentally, I cannot fathom having that level of negativity. If you're that upset, just stop watching the game. Maybe maybe college sports are not the thing for you. Uh, I know it's hard. I know it's hard to watch the team not doing well, uh, but... You got to keep the faith. Uh, obviously, it was it was Memphis played the best half they've played this entire season, and it was a barely a ten point game. Drew Timmy erased their deficit in four minutes <laughs> to start the second half. I'm not going to tell you that I thought that that was going to happen, but Memphis had not played that well throughout the majority of the season. We they they were up 19 at halftime against Boise State. Boise State came back within five. So them letting a team back into the game in the second half, entirely unsurprising to a lot of people who had seen Memphis already this year. So I think part of it was Memphis not being a, a good enough team to hang with the Zags for a full 40 minutes. I think some of Gonzaga's adjustments were brilliant. They went out in transition a ton in the second half. Memphis was a top 40 team in pace in the entire country, but Gonzaga's first. And so trying to run with Gonzaga was going to be hard for them to do, especially when they got in foul trouble early. So I think it was it was a combination of things. I think it was mostly Gonzaga making good adjustments. I don't think Memphis made a lot more mistakes 
in the second half, they just they just couldn't hang. I don't think that Memphis even had this huge athletic advantage. They got a lot of athletes on their team, do not get me wrong, but people tend to undersell the athleticism and the talent of of a lot of Gonzaga's players. And that's it's frustrating when I see fans throughout the year argue with people who parrot these kind of overblown and, and oversaid narratives about Gonzaga, like they're not athletic enough, they're they're not physical enough, their conference doesn't challenge them. And fans will argue with those people all year long, but as soon as the chips are down for Gonzaga, they all of a sudden start to believe those same things. And I find this very frustrating. And I know there are a lot of Gonzaga fans out there who probably find this frustrating as well. If you don't actually believe that, if you agree with all the casual fans, you just don't say it unless things are going bad for Gonzaga... I don't know what to tell you because this team clearly proved they can handle a team that's as athletic as Memphis. They proved that the physicality is not going to cost them any victories. And hopefully it's going to make them even better as they continue to go through the NCAA tournament. Next question, another one from Christian. Christian says, I hate bringing this one up, but you will get it multiple times. The Zags in the first half were negative eight in two games. In the second half, they were plus 33 in the first two games. The halftime adjustments have been impressive, but my fingernails and my Zen state are dwindling. Yeah, so I think a part of this is that the teams Gonzaga was playing, Georgia State and Memphis, had nothing to lose in terms of how they prepared for Gonzaga. They were the severely under, you know, lower seeded than Gonzaga. Their season was on the line. Gonzaga could go into those games basically expecting to do what they do. There was no reason for Mark Few and the staff to go into those games trying to do anything differently than what they've done all year long. For Memphis and Georgia State, it was worth the opportunity to try something new, try something different. So they watch film and they watch what Gonzaga's done all season long. And Gonzaga comes out and pretty much does that. Whereas Memphis and Georgia State, they tried different things and it took Gonzaga by surprise. It caught them off guard. In this, the first half of the Memphis game, a lot of people wanted to point to Drew Timmy struggling, and he only got three shot attempts. And the, the reason for that was not that he was incapable of getting the but It's not that he was struggling to make shots. It's that Memphis was taking away the passing lanes to get him the basketball. Gonzaga made an adjustment in the second half. They got Drew Timmy the basketball five or six times on the first five or six possessions. He scored 11 points. That was pretty much ball game. So they made an adjustment. That's what they needed to be able to do. Mark Fuke, it's hard to make in-game adjustments without a, a break to actually talk about them at halftime like they did. So I think a lot of it is just these teams hitting Gonzaga with very different looks than what the Zags were expecting to see on film. It's, it's frustrating to see the Zags get outscored by eight points in the first two halves of their first two games of the NCAA tournament, but obviously the fact that they are 2-0 is all that really matters. Next question comes from Larry via Gmail. Larry says, we've seen it more than once. So goes Nembhard, so goes the Zags. He did it again. What a player. Of course, Timmy has morphed into a dynamo for one half of each game. What's up with that? Yeah, this is basically kind of just an extension of the previous question. Uh, again, Drew Timmy went one for three in the first half against Memphis. He did not go one for eight. He did not go 0 for six or whatever it was against San Francisco in the first game they played this year. He went one for three. That's, it's not a, I'm not going to say it's a good half. I'm not pretending that it was a good half. But Andrew Nemhard, who had a phenomenal game, as you mentioned, had one assist in the first half. He's not getting blame for that. But that was the problem. It was not that Drew Timmy wasn't scoring 
in the first half. It's that he wasn't getting the basketball. And this is what Memphis did a really good job of taking away. Gonzaga has multiple different ways they try to get Drew Timmy the basketball. You can tell that Memphis was well coached and prepared to stop him from getting the ball in spots that make him comfortable. So that was the biggest key. Drew Timmy did not have a bad first half and a great second half. He was a non-factor in the first half and then had a great second half. It's a subtle difference, but I think it helps inform what actually happened in this game. Because it was not, again, it was not a Drew Timmy magically just started making shots that he wasn't making in the first half. He started taking shots in the second half that he didn't have the ability to get in the first half because of the way Memphis was playing him. Gonzaga made adjustments. They changed the way they were trying to get him the basketball. They got out in transition more, which was a huge factor. And then, of course, the foul trouble. Drew Timmy, in the first half, again, he only took three shot attempts, but he drew a lot of fouls. And that had a huge impact in the second half when Williams and Duren were on the bench because they had four fouls. Next question, the final one of this segment comes from at Zags Basketball on Twitter, who says, In the first half, how was Memphis so good at crashing the offensive boards and in transition defense? Seems like usually you can only choose one. This is a very good question, and without having rewatched the game on TV, I don't know that I can give you a super great thorough answer. I did not have time to do that today, and I was live at the game, so it's that, that was a harder thing for me to physically watch. I can tell you a few guesses. Number one, they have really good athletes. <laughs> I think that's probably the primary thing that caused that in this game was they just have dudes who are very long, very lanky, very athletic. We also saw a team that got gassed in the second half. Andrew Nemhard ran circles around them throughout the second half because they could not hang with Gonzaga. I think that they worked so hard in the first half at trying to crash the offensive glass, and then if they didn't, sprinting back as fast as they could to avoid letting Gonzaga get out in transition. And they did that successfully, but it's really hard to do that for 40 minutes. And ultimately, they, they just were not able to do it for a full 40 minutes. The last 10 minutes of that game, they were gassed. They could not get up and down the court. They were Gonzaga was running all over them, and that's what ended up leading to the victory. All right, we got more listener-submitted questions coming your way in the second segment. Before we get there, though, I want to tell you all about Stat Hero. Stat Hero's NCAA single-game pickums pits the star players against each other in an amazing hybrid between fantasy and sports gambling. Take control back from those handicappers that always seem to have the advantage. Start focusing on the players you know best with a gameplay that doesn't rely on big spreads, long odds, or funky props. Stat Hero gives you the advantage, resulting in their gamers winning four times more often. Why? Because Stat Hero eliminates the mystery about who or what you are going up against. In addition to their pick'em games, they also have dozens of lineups you can comb through to take on head-to-head. They simply post sets of players for you to take on with a set of players you choose. Stat Hero is the easiest and fastest way to get your sports action fix. The simple, sleek gameplay will have you playing in minutes. This is what Daily Fantasy was meant to be. Sign up for free right now at stathero.com slash locked on and use promo code locked on for a 100% deposit match. That's stathero.com slash locked on. Use promo code locked on for a 100% match. Today's episode is also sponsored by Built Bar. This is the time of year that I've pretty much given up on all of my New Year's resolutions, but not this year. I'm sticking to my resolution to eat right thanks to Built Bar. It almost feels like it's not really a resolution because I actually enjoy eating them. Have you tried the Puffs? If you haven't, you're missing out on one of Built Bar's best tasting bars. Puffs are the first ever protein-infused marshmallow. They're fluffy, they're marshmallowy, they're not just a protein bar, they're a treat. And they're covered in 100% real chocolate. In fact, all Built Bars are covered in 100% real chocolate. A typical candy bar can be anywhere from two to 300 calories. 
Most Bilt Bars contain 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, 4 net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. They have mint brownie, coconut, coconut almond, and new for this month, white chocolate cookies and cream. They are all delicious, and new flavors are coming out all the time. Go to Bilt.com, use promo code LOCKED15, and you will get 15% off your order. That's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at Bilt.com. All right, segment two, still any patents, still locked on Zags. Still answering listener-submitted questions all episode long for Mailbag Monday. The second segment is mostly the Chet Holmgren segment. This first question comes from Drew Timmy Stash on Twitter. It simply says, Chet's non-paint scoring, question mark. Tyler LaFrance on Twitter expanded on that same thought and said, Jet is one for his last 15 for three. Do you think we'll see him break out of that in the Sweet 16? I know it's not a defensive issue. The majority of them have been open looks from his spots. So I haven't done a full deep dive into Arkansas and their perimeter defense just yet, so I don't want to give a full definitive answer on that. But do I think that Chet is going to be better in his next 15 attempts than he has been in his last 15 attempts? Yes, I can say that fairly conclusively. I am guessing that while you, you mentioned it's not a defensive issue, and I think that that's probably accurate, but what I do think is causing part of this is he is being asked to do a lot more on defense. The big men that he has gone up against, even against Georgia State, but especially against Memphis in Duran and DeAndre Williams, are very, very good, and he has had to work very, very hard. Now, he has done an incredible job. He played great, great, great defense against Jalen Duran, the kind of defense that should solidify his spot at the top spot of the 2022 NBA draft. It's probably wearing him out. I think it's reasonable to expect that he is a little bit more fatigued going through games like that against high-level NBA-caliber athletes than he is against some of the competition that he faced in the regular season. Is that directly contributing to him missing open shots? It's hard to say conclusively, but I don't think it's unreasonable to think that probably. <laughs> One for 15 is, is, is definitely just a slump. It's a slump. Like there, there's that is definitively what it is. It is likely not a his talent level didn't fall off. This is not a space jam situation. It is just a slump. It is a slump that is probably caused by a f- full season fatigue from playing a long college basketball season, the first time in his career doing so, playing against the best competition of the season late in the year, and just simple simple slump type stuff. I think he's going to come back. I think we're going to see him kind of rebound and start shooting a little bit better. It's critical for the Zags for him to do so. He stretches the floor. He gives Drew Timmy more room to operate down low, puts less pressure on the guards. So it's it's imperative that he starts shooting better from three. And I think we are going to see that. But right now, he's, he's just in a big shooting slump. Next question comes from Kelly Bilderback on Twitter, who says, I've been believing Chet could handle the athleticism that comes his way and still play his game. But after yesterday's game, I'm not so sure. No coast-to-coast drives, no three-point shots go in, only nine points in foul trouble. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think that that's an entirely accurate way to describe Chet Holmgren's game against Memphis. Uh, It it leaves out the key aspect of his defense, specifically on Jalen Duran. Jalen Duran went three for 11 from the field. Chet Holmgren blocked four shots. Chet Holmgren had more blocked shots than NBA lottery pick Jalen Duran had made field goals. That is a crucial, critical stat in this game. It is. It has a huge impact on Gonzaga's ability to win this game. Duran was very much neutralized in this game as an offensive piece. If Chet did nothing else, 
If Chet did nothing else, doing that was a huge part of the reason Gonzaga won. Nine points, nine boards, four blocks is certainly not the kind of stat line that stands out the way that some of his other stat lines have stood out this year, but it's also not horrible. We talked about the outside shooting already. Yes, him not doing that is is it's something that he was doing earlier in the year that he's not doing now. There's no debating that. I, I mentioned a few reasons why I think that might be, and yes, part of it might be that, hand, that having to go up against more athletic big men is wearing him out a little bit. I don't think that that's an unreasonable prediction to make. The coast-to-coast drive was more about Memphis just playing good transition defense. I think it had less to do with Chet not finding his way to be able to do that. So the short answer to this question is no, I don't think that that it, there's any there's no part of me that's concerned that Chet cannot handle this level of athleticism. In fact, the defense he played on Duran makes me far more confident than I was before about his ability to play NBA caliber defense and be the backbone of this team on that end of the floor. It does mean it may cut into his ability to drop 25 points on a nightly basis, but Gonzaga did not win this games this year because Chet Holmgren scored 20 points on offense. They won games this year because Drew Timmy was a phenomenal machine on offense, Andrew Nemhart is the best point guard in the country, and Chet Holmgren's an elite-level rim protector. All three of those things happened against Memphis, and they won. Next question comes from Cyberhawk on Twitter. It says, do you think getting Strother to click from three will matter? Asking with his recent struggles the last two games, 0 for 9. Larry via Gmail asked a similar question, said, what is going on with Strother's shooting? Yeah, Julian Strother has really struggled recently. 0 for 9 in the last two games, as Cyberhawk mentioned. Uh, he, he only had one good game in Las Vegas uh, against St. Mary's. He had a great first half in that game. Was not as good in the second half. Was basically a non-factor against San Francisco. He has not been himself the last couple of weeks. To answer the first question, will it matter? Yes, it's very important. I believe that in, if Julian Strother does not make a three-pointer in Gonzaga's next couple of games, they're probably not going to win all of them. I really think that his offensive contributions to this team are very, very important for the same reasons that I mentioned them with Chet. Him being able to hit outside shots stretches the defense. It gives Drew Timmy more room to operate in the paint. It puts less pressure on Nempart and Bolton to be outside shooters, or in this case, less pressure on Chet Holmgren to be an outside shooter. Strother is a good defensive player. He's a good rebounder. He's good at getting to the rim. But his biggest strength for this team is his outside shooting. If he's not doing that, he becomes a lot more difficult to play. Next question, which is on that same vein, comes from Lothar King on Twitter, who says, Biggest concern on Thursday, Chet's three-point shooting slump or Strother's scoring slump, or are neither a concern? No, both are a concern. (laughs) I will say that. Uh, Again, the Zags were able to win without either of those guys contributing from beyond the arc, which is a testament to... Andrew Nembhard, to Drew Timmy, to Razier Bolton, who had a phenomenal game, 17 points on 6 of 9 shooting against Memphis. Really nice game from him. But I think the reason that I'm more concerned about Strother is kind of what I just laid out. Chet will Chet could score two points in a game and impact the game monumentally because of what he does on the defensive end of the floor. If Julian Strother scores two or less points in a game, it is very unlikely that he was a positive in other ways. Again, he's not a bad defensive player, but he is not a game-altering defensive player. So he's just not contributing enough if he's not scoring. And he does most of his scoring from three. Now, he had six points against Memphis, and that was without hitting an outside shot. Six points is not nothing. The Zags won by less than six points, so you could argue that they needed that contribution. He had a nice post-up move. I remember that specifically, but it's a bigger deal if Strother's not playing well because he becomes borderline unplayable. Whereas with Chet Holmgren, if he's not shooting well from beyond the arc, that's just one element of what he brings to this team. 
Final question in the second segment comes from Lucas Porter 8 on Twitter. Is Chet seven blocks in the first round a single game school record? I thought I remember the record being six. And then he says, are there any good free online resources for Gonzaga school records and statistics for current and past seasons? Yes and yes to those questions. Chet tied his own record, which was set on November 9th of this past season against Dixie State. And it was set originally by Shemek Karnowski back in 2014. So six was not the record. Seven was the record. And so Chet tied that by getting seven blocks. That is the record now. Chet Holmgren has the record. Tied with Shemek Karnowski. Uh, in terms of where to find stats like this, sportsreference.com is phenomenal. It's a free service. Uh, they have tons of information. They don't have a lot of deep statistical analysis. So if you wanted some more like, you know, rate stat stuff or per game basis numbers or like zone, you know, like man versus zone defense, some of that more analytically stuff, that's like Synergy Sports. Uh, Ken Palm's database has a lot of information like that. Those are those are services that cost money. Sports Reference, entirely free. You can go there. You can look at Gonzaga's encyclopedia. It showed single game records for every statistic out there, including block shots. That's how I found this one. All right, two segments down. Coming up, we're going to answer even more listener-submitted questions in the final segment. Before we get there, though, I want to tell you all about Bet Online. There might be less football being played, but BetOnline.net has way more stuff to bet on this playoff season. From scores, totals, and player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land, BetOnline is the number one spot for all things NFL betting in 2022. And it's not just football. BetOnline.net's basketball, hockey, boxing, and UFC odds coverage is the best in the business. From sports right down to your favorite Vegas casino games, BetOnline is your number one online wagering destination. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all of your favorite sports and play your favorite games. All right, segment three. Still Andy Patton, still locked on Zags, still answering listener-submitted questions for Mailbag Monday. This first question comes from Christian via Gmail. Christian says, Drew Timmy has confidently re-entered the Player of the Year discussion after the last two games. How much is the tournament considered for the various postseason awards? And he says, MVP and Player of the Year are oft contrasted. Is that just semantics? So I don't think that the, that the NCAA tournament is often considered all that much for the Player of the Year award. Uh, historically, when you look at who has won those awards, it hasn't seemed to matter all that much. Luca Garza last year got bounced early in the tournament. He still won the Player of the Year award. As just one recent example, at least, uh, in terms of MVP and Player of the Year, uh, MVP is usually better for ass assessing a small amount of time, so like a, the conference tournament MVP. You know, that may be a player who isn't necessarily the overall player of the year, but was the most valuable player for those three games in the tournament. Player of the year is generally more all-encompassing, I suppose. This is just my interpretation. I think the, the nice but also sometimes frustrating part about these awards is that they are up for a lot of interpretation. Different voters can kind of interpret them different ways which is how you sometimes don't get a lot of uniformity on how people choose to vote on these things. I think that that makes it a little bit more fun, a little bit more interesting, but certainly it can be frustrating if there's not a lot of agreement on, on who the best players actually are. Next question comes from Larry via Gmail. Larry says, 9 for 20 at the free throw line until Nembhard sealed things with four in a row. What the H is going on with no one but Andrew can make free throws? Uh, so I want to really quickly point out that nobody but Andrew and Rasir Bolton can make free throws. Bolton has shot 87% from the free throw line since February. He has not missed 
in the NCAA tournament. Literally has not missed a single free throw. He hit two down the stretch uh, against Memphis. He also hit two against Georgia State. He's not taking a ton of free throws, so I know that it's not as making a huge impact on Gonzaga's overall free throw percentage, but 87% from February, certainly not. It doesn't mean that Andrew's the only guy making free throws. However, everybody else has struggled. Like, really struggled. Really, really struggled. Anton Watson's been horrific from the free throw line. Drew Timmy has been very bad from the free throw line. Chet Holmgren, Julian Strother, who we've mentioned have been struggling to shoot from the outside. They're not shooting it well from the free throw line either. Uh, Yeah, this needs to get corrected. I I wish I could tell you why it was happening. (laughs) If the players knew why it was happening, uh, I would hope that they are going to fix it as best as possible. Maybe they're still adjusting to the new tournament basketballs, which we'll talk about in a minute. Maybe the rims in Portland were just super, super unforgiving. It definitely seemed like that. But that... That neither of those things can be an excuse for even more than a game. Really, neither of those things should be an excuse for more than like a half. So for them to struggle from the free throw line for two straight games is nothing more than them failing to execute. Mark Few talked about it after the game. He said he thinks it's kind of fluky. He thinks that they've you know been shooting free throws well all season long, so he wasn't super worried long-term about their free throw shooting. I'm inclined to believe him. I don't think that this team is just a horrific free throw shooting team all of the sudden. That seems very unlikely, but you 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 don't have the ability to just slump from the free throw line in the close games of the NCAA tournament. They were fortunate that Nembhard carried the team from the free throw line in the last minute of that game because free throw shooting would have been a huge part of the storyline had they not been able to pull out that victory. Hopefully it it is a non-factor when they go down to San Francisco and they can start being their normal selves from the charity stripe. Next question comes from Josh Edits on Twitter, second of the show for him. He says, do tourney teams get to practice with the same ball being used in the tournament in between rounds? There have been a lot of complaints about the new ball, and hopefully the Zags can spend all week nestling with it and whispering sweet nothings or just practicing their free throws. So I don't actually know the answer to this. I did some attempted research on this, was not able to find anything. Unfortunately, if anybody listening does have an answer to this and would like to let me know, I would be happy to post about that. Uh, I suspect they do, but I am, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that. Uh, and again, I, I think the ball probably was a small factor, but should not have been a factor for more than the first first half of basketball. After that, if you can't adjust to a basketball, you probably, (laughs) like, you need to be able to make those kind of adjustments if you're this high level of a basketball player. You need to be able to adjust to a slightly different basketball or a slightly different rim. It should not have been an issue that, that impacted them longer than the first half of the first game against Georgia State. Next question comes from Christian. He says, Jay Billis tweeted, North Carolina and Baylor are playing a physical, tough, competitive game, but it's not basketball. It's hockey and rugby. This has been happening all season and it needs to change. What are your thoughts on this take? If this is true, does it benefit some styles and teams over others? For example, Baylor's press and subsequent comebacks seemed aided by the ability they had to press with robust physicality. Yeah, it's been a weird gear for officiating. I feel... The officiating hasn't been particularly good this season. I also feel bad for the officials because some of the complaints that have been levied at them are more issues with the rulebook changing in general. The charge block call is just an absolute disgrace. I don't think anybody who's watching college basketball this year could really, in good faith, argue positively for those changes. It's been really horrific. And again, it's not necessarily the referee's fault. Obviously, they get some of them wrong, but it's the rule change that is just a disaster. Flop warnings are extraordinarily inconsistent. Many times a player will do the same thing five times in a row. Four times he'll get an offensive foul called on the opposing player. One time he'll get a flop warning. And these are hard calls to make, but the NCAA does not have to make them this hard. In terms of physicality, yes, some some teams and some refereeing groups just seem to let 
players really get away with a lot. Gonzaga actually benefits from this in some ways. I know people are quick to criticize Gonzaga's ability to handle physicality, and, and the majority of the physicality they have struggled with is a perimeter pressure. Like Baylor, that's what they took away from Gonzaga really well uh, in the national championship game last year. But what we saw Gonzaga do against Memphis and their physicality and their athleticism is just draw a ton of contact. Yeah, they're not contributing from the free throw line, which is definitely an issue. But a huge part of the reason they beat Memphis was DeAndre Williams and Jalen Duran having to sit for huge chunks of the second half. And frankly, huge chunks of the first half as well because of foul trouble. Drew Timmy is a maestro at drawing contact and getting to the free throw line. He's really, really good at this. He obviously needs to work on putting the ball through the net on those free throws. And that is a big factor. But while he is... When he, even when he's not making the free throws, it can feel like they're wasted opportunities. Drawing contact and getting those players in foul trouble was a critical piece of Gonzaga's success against Memphis and is very likely something they will utilize again in future games in this tournament. Final question of the show, another one from Christian. He says, the Lady Zags break down their tournament. Coach Fortier continues to get the Zags to play their best basketball when it matters most. Unfortunately, the Lady Zags season is over. They beat Nebraska in the 8-9 matchup uh, by a score of 68-55. to That was a great game for the Zags. Kaylee Trong had 20 points, 5 rebounds, and 4 assists, and Melody Kempton added 14 and 8. But the reward was playing the number one seeded Louisville. Uh, and after going down 14 to nothing, the Zags stormed back and were only down 4 at half. But they out, got outscored 20 to 12 in the third quarter. They lost 68 to 59. That is the end of their season. A really nice showing for this group, by the way. Nine seeded team snuck into the NCAA tournament. They, they should have been healthily in as an at large bid, but they stole the automatic qualifying bid from BYU anyway, just for funsies to defeat BYU. Got themselves this nine seed. A tough draw to play Louisville in Louisville in the second round. Uh, proud of this team for going down 14 to nothing, getting all the way back into the game, only losing by single digits. Uh, a nice game. Again, Trong had 14 and four. She did have six turnovers. That was a huge part of the game. Louisville managed to turn them over quite a bit. Just to take a little dig at the men's team, the, the ladies' team shot 17 of 20 from the free throw line, which is extraordinary. It's a huge part of the reason they stayed in that game was that they could contribute from the charity stripe. So perhaps Coach Fee will have some words with Coach Fortier about what drills they're running in practices to get themselves to be shooting that well from the charity stripe because we know that our men's team could absolutely use it. All right, that is going to do it for me today. More questions answered on tomorrow's show and, of course, a ton of information and previews coming for Gonzaga's game against the Arkansas Razorbacks on Thursday, all right here on the Locked On Zags podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts and available on YouTube as well. Podcast links will also be available on Twitter at Locked On Zags and on my personal Twitter account, which you can follow at ScoreZagsScore. Finally, thank you again to those of you who have made Locked On Zags your first listen every day. Now is a great chance to make your second listen to the Locked On NFL Draft podcast. Ryan Tracy and former NFL cornerback Eric Crocker bring the NFL Draft to life every day with insight and analysis on college football prospects and NFL front offices. It's free and available wherever you get podcasts. All right, thank you all for listening, and go Zags!